Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, everybody. It's Daryl White speaking. I want to thank everyone for joining us today for our expert panel on COVID-19 and implications for the economy. Throughout the pandemic, BMO has been bringing you views from medical experts and our own experts to help provide context and deliver accurate, relevant, and actionable information. Today, in Toronto, we hosted the 203rd annual general meeting of the Bank of Montreal. Naturally, the COVID-19 pandemic was a key topic of discussion. You can go there for a lot of the discussion that we had and that I had in particular uh, earlier today. Um, But now, uh, I'm hosting a panel of experts from inside and outside of BMO and across disciplines to help us make sense of what's to come and help us understand how businesses will evolve and adapt and respond and to help answer the questions that are on everybody's mind in terms of impact on ourselves and our people and our on our economies. I'm pleased to be joined by Christy Mitchum, who is the CEO of our asset management business, who's joining from Florida today. Doug Porter, who is our chief economist, who's joining from Toronto today. Dr. John White, who is the CEO of WebMD, who's joining us from just outside of Washington, D.C., and Albert Yu, who is the CEO of BMO Asia, who is joining us from Beijing. I'm going to begin, typically panels end with rapid fire, but I'm actually going to suggest that we begin this panel with a bit of a rapid fire. I'm going to ask each of my colleagues to go around and quickly uh, share a very uh, quick bit of information about themselves and their interaction with the pandemic so far, just so that you can be situated uh, with each of them in terms of their own lens. Dr. White, could I start with you? Absolutely, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. John White. I'm a practicing internist, um, and as Daryl said, I'm the chief medical officer at WebMD. And what I've been doing over the last few weeks is really working to make sure that we provide credible, evidence-based information about COVID-19, the coronavirus, to our 81 million unique visitors that come to our site every month, as well as working with media partners around the world to provide measured commentary on what we know, what we don't know, and what we need to be doing. We actually launched a daily news show called Coronavirus in Context, where I've been interviewing key experts on this topic and really trying to provide actionable information uh, to consumers in terms of how they best manage it. And I've had the opportunity uh, to work with BMO over the last uh, several weeks on, on, on calls trying to provide good information for people. Thank you, Dr. White. Doug, I'm going to turn to you. Can you quickly share a little bit about what you're doing and your interaction with the pandemic so far? Yep. Thank you, Daryl, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm uh, Doug Porter. I'm the uh, Chief Economist here with BMO. Well, it's uh, really no accident that Dr. White is the first guest on this call since the uh, path of the virus is ultimately in charge of where uh, we're going on the economic and financial uh, outlook in in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, but what I can say is from an economic standpoint that this is clearly a unique episode. Uh, both the speed and the extent of the downturn are simply unheard of. Um, but I'll also add that the speed and extent of the policy response has also been unprecedented, whether it's monetary policy, 
fiscal policy, or even regulatory changes. And we probably haven't seen the last of key policy measures aimed at supporting the economy through this uh, very challenging episode. Um, I'll just conclude that I'm quite confident that ultimately we will see a forceful recovery uh, when the worst of the health crisis has passed. And financial markets will probably signal that coming recovery long before we see it in the economic data. Uh, Still, there's no doubt there's going to be some significant and long-lasting changes in the economy when we're beyond the health crisis and just how significant those changes are may be driven by how long the mandated economic shutdowns last. Turn it back to you, Daryl. Thanks, Doug. So health crisis, economy, financial markets, great segue to Christy. Christy runs our asset management business. Christy, maybe you just tell people a little bit about what you do and your reflections on the pandemic so far. Yeah, sure. So as Daryl indicated, um, my name is Christy Mitchum, and I lead our global asset management business, um, which is obviously a large uh, global asset manager with a well-diversified client base that extends across both institutions and individuals. And I guess my primary reflection here would just be on the importance of communication and advice. We know that knowledge and information sharing are key in nurturing rational market action. So I'd just like to stress the critical nature of dialogue as we confront this crisis together. I would agree with that. And that dialogue brings us to Albert, uh, who sits in Beijing. And in some ways, I think of Albert as my leading indicator in the company on the crisis, given the lead that our friends in China experience. So Albert, a quick word from you on how the pandemic has experienced so far from your perspective. Well, thank you, Daryl. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Albert Yu, uh, I'm based in Beijing, uh, CEO of Asia. Uh, Daryl, so much has changed in the last two and a half months in terms of how we work and how we live. Since mid-January, the entire country in China felt like it was through a horror movie. And at the time when COVID-19 at then was completely new and no one knew what might come next. Uh, the most of the country was in lockdown for the last two and a half months, uh, but adversity brings out the best in people, and we lean on the strength of our global BMO family, making sure our staff safe while we support our clients and maintain stability in the banking system. Uh, what I experienced in January, uh, sadly and unfortunately, now seems to be unfolding in North America and in Europe. But based on what I've gone through here, uh, I know that there's a path recovery. Things are going to get better, and I'm confident we're going to come out this stronger together. Daryl. Okay. Um, so that was a great uh, sort of rapid fire. Now we're going to start to dig in a little bit, and I'm going to bring us back to Dr. White. Um, you know, I think a question that I'm getting a lot uh, today and all the days before today um, is around the models and, and the forecasting um, of the the path of the virus, and in particular, um, when we will hit the peak and begin to forecast more accurately when we return to a quote-unquote more normal period. Where where are we, Dr. White, according to the models? You're a lot closer to the front line of this battle than, than some of us are. Sure. And let's talk a little about where we are in North America today. <clears throat> so as of about two hours ago, in Canada, there were 7,474 cases of coronavirus with 92 deaths versus the United States, 163,565 cases with 3,000 deaths. And let's talk about the modeling because 
it's, it's a challenge, though, because we're not truly comparing apples to apples. And you've probably been watching the news with these different slopes. There's actually 12 different models with point estimates that have wide ranges, and we often don't discuss those ranges. But here's what we need to think about, testing which is the key matrix, and it hasn't been consistent when we think about modeling. And it's important to point out we are in Italy because they're an older population with more comorbidities, and they started mitigation social distancing strategies later than we did. But having said that, where do we think we're at? Most experts are predicting that in North America, our peak will be in about two weeks, mid-April. Because when we're looking at the information I just gave you, we're really 10 to 14 days behind given the incubation period. But an important point highlighted by the U.S. Surgeon General this week, as well as the Coronavirus Task Force in the United States, is even though we're still seeing a fair number of deaths, the rate of increase in the deaths is decreasing. The rate of increase is decreasing in deaths. And the rate in terms of new cases, given where we are in testing, has also decreased. So mitigation might be starting to have an impact, albeit small, and still yet to be determined. But we're probably a point on our curve where if we flatten the curve, that's going to extend it. Remember, because that's about you know, making sure we protect surge capacity but we're probably going to see things get a little worse because we're going to see many more cases because of increased testing over the next two weeks. And then I think we're going to start to see how do we emerge in four to six weeks from that, given the time course in other countries. So, Dr. White, when you say peak mid-April, mm-hmm. is, that, is that peak positive tests? That's correct. Peak positive tests. And, and peak in the continuing increase in deaths, even if we start to have, you know, a, a, a decreased differential. So that's where it'll be hardest hit, the most cases, particularly those that are presenting for emergency care and hospitalization. That's the prediction. It's, it's based on models assuming certain behavioral uh, approaches. Okay. I'm going to switch us from uh, one science to the next, from the medical to the economics. Doug, um, as we move on to the economic front uh, and look beyond the immediate pain, how, how, do we, how do we get out of this? How does the economy play out over the period that Dr. White just described, and probably more importantly, um, in the quarters that follow? You mentioned up front your confidence in a recovery later, but how do you see it from here to there? Yeah, and first off, there's there's little doubt now that the economic impact from this uh, will be quite severe as a result of the, the broad-based mandated shutdowns. Uh, Bank of Canada governor, for instance, put it well last week that it's in some ways now more a matter of arithmetic and not forecasting and trying to measure the, the downturn. Uh, but he also said that the specific number is is not really the key point now. What's what's more important, and the focus should be on the speed the shape of the, the coming recovery, and maybe most importantly is when does it begin? Now, no one can make a definitive statement on, on when, but it, it's, it's definitely a building debate in financial markets over that question uh, and, and mostly what will be the shape of, uh, of the recovery. Um, I, would, I, would, you know, I know it's popular to try to put a letter on it, you know, whether it's a V or a U or an L. I would caution against trying to put a specific uh, 
letter on this recovery because it's not going to be exactly a V or a U. This is a very unusual and unique episode, and it's going to vary by sector and by region. Um, but I, I, I can tell you that I'm, I'm quite confident that activity will see a big bounce in the third quarter. We may not be fully back to 100% uh, for the economy as a whole until next year. Um, and again, there will be significant differences by uh, sector. For instance, some industries will clearly face a, a longer workout period, things uh, such as uh, the travel and tourism sector, things like entertainment, possibly eat in restaurants, and perhaps uh, the retail sector as well. Um, but I would note that people are very resourceful. Uh, they can come up with different ways of doing business. And I, th- I think ultimately the economy will be to prove to be very resilient. Good news. Um, Christy, you have been an observer of markets and an expert in markets for your whole career. Um, for many of us, that does span prior to the global financial crisis. There have been a lot of comparisons made between what's going on now and what happened during that time in 2008. What's, what's your reaction to that? Because I would say that, you know, I think this, this crisis is, is very unique. I've, I've certainly never seen anything like it, and I don't think most watchers of the market have. But that doesn't mean that we can't take some of the lessons learned in 2008 and apply them in the COVID context. And in fact, as, as Doug referenced, that's exactly what we're seeing, particularly as it relates to liquidity and the unfreezing of financial market conditions. Really using the playbook that they developed back in 2008 The response of the Fed and the U.S. Treasury has really been so impressive, both in terms of its swiftness as well as in terms of the expansiveness of the types of programs that they've actually rolled out. And other governments are, of course, following suit. So maybe echoing a comment made earlier, I have great confidence that because we learned from 2008, the foundation for greater market stability is being laid right now. Um, But I do think it's also just important to underscore that the financial war on COVID is really going to be fought on two fronts. First, I think a precursor, obviously, is market stability. Action has been taken there. I think we'll see additive action um, out of governments and central banks. But I think in, in some, that will have the intended results of bringing stability. The second front is really the real economy. And I think that's probably the tougher slog here. Um, And I don't think we can emphasize enough the importance of reigniting the economy post-crisis as a critical enabler of a return to normalcy. I know that Albert's going to have some reflections on that when he speaks about China and what the Chinese government is doing to try to bolster activity as they begin to emerge. But I think it's something that all of us as business leaders really need to be focused on. Yes, the here and now, let's get markets stable, let's get them functioning, but then let's really plan for how we can emerge from this in, in a really strong way. Okay, so you you, uh, you mentioned Albert, and Albert, I'd like to bring you in just now. Uh, I said in the introductions that in a way I think of Albert as a window into the future, um, having come to, at least in part, to the other side, as it were, of uh, the bridge, and we don't know whether the path will be exactly the same in North America as it was in China, but I think it's very instructive. Albert, why don't you tell us about that experience, in particular the policy response and what you're now seeing on the ground in China after after all these weeks. Sure, Daryl. Well, it all started uh, at the beginning of the Chinese New Year holiday, so it's kind of uh, right after mid-January. And around that time, about 500 million people were traveling. So uh, it's kind of a perfect storm, actually. Um, so the government had unleashed draconian measures 
self-discipline was both expected and often enforced. So simple things from from now from their point of view now that we have mandatory phone app to locate where you are. Uh, we have been assigned an individual health code that show a color of whether you're healthy or not before you can even enter BMO's office building. Uh, to some extreme cases where tape was placed across doors for quarantining people. So peer group pressure to follow all these was immense. Um, it is considered a civic duty to follow the rules. Uh, but the society really came together. Uh, on the business front, uh, Banks were mandated by the government to operate starting on February 3rd, um, and that's very early in the crisis. It was a bit chaotic there at the beginning, but I think the BMO team really quickly maintained safety and enabled us to deliver core services to our clients. So people work from home, from office, some stuck in faraway places because they couldn't come back from uh, the vacation, and we supported by the strength of the BMO Global family. So we quickly learned how to adapt as a society, but I have to say anxiety level was quite high. Um, and one thing I found out was we drew tremendous comfort by helping out each other. So solving problems for clients, raising money for those in need, or simply just calling up each other for well wishes. So we could see a lot of good spirit out of this. Uh, the Chinese financial markets uh, have been relatively resilient throughout the crisis. Uh, the central bank's People Bank of China held its own uh, with steady monetary policy, abundant liquidity in the market, and tailored fiscal stimulus. The state has adopted really a forensic approach to help targeted sectors, specific geographies, and also specific segments of the population. So I think in current day, the focus uh, uh, from the government is actually to begin to get life back to normal, uh, but it's easier said than done. Uh, while the coronavirus uh, may have been contained, the challenge is now to bring people's mindset back to normal. Uh, shops are all open. The government mandated all shops to open, but food traffic is less than 20% in restaurants and shopping malls. Uh, I can say nearby our office, the district government is have stepped in to make sure they subsidize discounts on merchandise. That's how far they would go to get people back on track to start spending money. So it's not going to be an easy recovery because of the mindset. It's it's um, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I, I want to come back to Dr. White because we just heard Albert talk about China and the response effectively to policy and to authority. And if we bring that back to North America, we do we do have cultural differences, don't we? And we have different um, responses from the, the exercise of authority. Um, but but those, responsive, those responses have varied greatly. You know, I was just listening to Albert describe um, the, um, the adherence in China. And then, you know, on the weekend, we still see, pic, you know, pics of people gathering and enjoying the sun and spring breaks and not quite getting it, if I could put it that way, on social distancing. How, how can we ensure that people are doing the right thing? Absolutely. There have been profound cultural issues in how people respond to authority in different countries, and even what we've seen in North America. And, and the challenge has been we haven't shown uniform adherence to the social distancing guidelines in the United States, certainly. 
uh, as you reference, people still at the beach, uh, in larger gatherings, as we've seen in other countries, and, and that's a problem. Uh, and the remedy to that in the United States has been states issuing these stay-in-place, stay-in-your-home orders, and talking about penalties for those folks that don't follow, and the need to establish checkpoints to make sure that, that people are following this quarantine. So initially, to rely on people to do the right thing, but that doesn't always happen. You know, Canada has actually managed this much better through a much broader testing strategy early on, where they tested many more people per capita, uh, and, and really whether or not they were having symptoms if they felt they needed one. We didn't do that in the United States, and I think that has helped contain the virus in Canada. And they also implemented mitigation strategies in place much more quickly. I think it goes to Albert's point. What we're going to see is that innovation and technology will much likely play a more important role to help people, even if they don't do the right thing on their own. And by that, it goes to those points that Albert kind of referenced, how we can use location trackers. There are privacy issues here in North America that people are more concerned about than in other countries. But if people become infected, we can look at their location and send notifications to other persons who might have come in contact with them. And then we can recommend self-quarantine or testing. Essentially, Daryl will be doing contract tracing by technology instead of public health workers who we know are in short supply. And that's very labor intensive. So I think we're going to see more of that in terms of using technology to help people do the right thing. And then we'll think about vaccine potential uh, and just my bias from being in the Food and Drug Administration, it's 18 months away on a good day. And we often know that vaccines for viruses have often been unsuccessful. But instead, we're going to be hearing much more about potential treatments. And several trials are underway in multiple strategies, not just about what you've been hearing about hydroxychloroquine uh, and azithromycin, but also about monoclonal antibodies. Uh, as well as this concept of convalescent plasma that we can talk about more if we have time, using antibodies in, in those persons that uh, have been infected and recovered to help people that are having a tough time. That's where I think we're going to see some of the ability of technology to address some of the cultural issues where in North America folks may not be as responsive to directives uh, by public health officials and government leaders. So I, I wonder if I'd like to pull that thread just a little bit further before we, we go on to the next topic. I, you know, as I listened to you, um, I was encouraged on the therapeutic side, uh, but maybe a little discouraged on the vaccine side. I heard you say 18 months. I've heard prognosticators go anywhere from 6 to 12 to 18 or longer. Um, why are those who are saying it'll be 6 or 8 months wrong? The ones that are talking about six months, and, and, you know, let's take influenza. The vaccine for this year has already been developed uh, because you have to make some predictions based on the strands, et cetera. And Dr. Fauci has talked about this. If we see something promising now, we're going to have to make a decision that might make it available in six months. But you know what? You might get it wrong, and that's not going to be helpful to people. And just, if, you know, just having been at FDA, if you look over time, 
vaccine development in viruses typically have to have multiple attempts. We've been working on a vaccine for HIV um, for two decades plus. So I think the folks that are saying six months are being very, just going to be honest, rosy colored uh, glasses, and, and that's okay. They might be right, but there's a big chance they could be wrong. But we still have to do those trials and get it under development, and there's already more than one trial underway. But in the short term, I think we really need to focus on different treatment strategies. And in the United States, there's been several emergency use authorizations for drugs that are already approved, but use it for this indication, but do it in the context of a trial where we're going to collect data. Because the key point, Daryl, is we can't let objectivity and safety and efficacy data go away just because we're in the middle of a pandemic. That's going to make matters worse for the next time. So we have to think about now, but we need to think about our strategy next time something like this occurs. Yeah, that's well, that's well said. I, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and Christy, I'm going to ask you to come back in. When you were speaking earlier, you were framing the, the financial markets effectively the financial war, the liquidity war that we're, we're in right now, and the real economy, getting the real economy kick-started. When, whenever we've had those conversations over time, the tension there has often resulted in a lot of challenges, but they've also, often also resulted in a lot of opportunities. What, from your lens, what are you seeing through your lens right now in the category of opportunity? Yeah, you know, I think absolutely. I, you know, I think in this crisis, we can find opportunity. Um, you know, a lot of people tend to focus on sort of what is that new normal going to look like and the winners that might emerge in things like teleconference technology, home networking, cybersecurity. You know, I, I think those opportunities will absolutely be there. But in some ways, I think some of the more interesting stuff really comes from price dislocations that are that are much more um, broad. And in many cases, that maybe relate to those things that we consider sort of losers in the COVID world. So maybe I'll just give you one example, uh, which is which is retail real estate. You know, I think that's a place where we're likely to find some really interesting uh, opportunities for investment. And in fact, in certain cases, we already have. Um, so maybe I'll just cite one example uh, from our European business, where we run a very large investment trust that has an allocation to retail real estate. And last week, that trust was trading at a discount of approximately 68%. Um, liquid, you know, publicly traded uh, security trading at a, at a substantial discount to NAV. Well, that created an opportunity, right, for both institutional and individual investors to step in and actually earn excess return. And I, and I guess I just note that, that that discount has narrowed by 15 to 20% just over the course of, of the past two days. So I think the key here. Um, is really about, um, you know, keeping your lens pretty wide, um, looking at a number of opportunities, um, keeping some powder dry, and then, of course, not being afraid to be contrarian when the time is right. You know, markets often do overshoot, and I think it's important for people to understand that. So if you as a rational investor can sort of step into the void, that's going to create some substantial opportunities over time. Doug? Um Yes, there'll be opportunities, but there'll be opportunities on the back of um, what we talked about earlier. So, so major government, central bank, fiscal and policy, monetary policy stimulus in North America, in fact, and policymakers all around the world have stepped in with relief packages, various forms. 
effectively um, to freeze the economy until the virus lifts, um, which I think almost everybody would agree is is the appropriate thing to do and lots of um, clear language around whatever it takes. Um, but at the same time, there is a longer-term economic impact to all this intervention, isn't there? Tell us, tell us what you think that is and what those implications will be. Yeah, and obviously we're still in the early chapters of, of the story. They're still being written. But I think one thing we all know that's going to be in the conclusion and one long-lasting legacy, unfortunately, will be that we're uh, going to be left with uh, larger debts pretty much across the board, but in, in particularly so in, uh, in government debt. Uh, we heard, for instance, today, or we're hearing t- uh, today from Ottawa on the uh, the new wage subsidy uh, program, and it will have a very large price tag, um, and it will add to what's already been more than $50 billion of uh, direct spending um, that's already been announced. And just as a reminder, uh, this year's federal budget deficit was initially seen at somewhere between 25 and $30 billion pre-crisis, or roughly 1% of, of the economy. Uh, now it looks like something in the neighborhood of 6 to 8% of the economy certainly seems realistic. And similarly, in the U.S., we saw, of course, a passage of uh, fiscal uh, support measures that were uh, more than $2 trillion last uh, week, which, combined with uh, the underlying shortfall that was already in place, will push the budget deficit well above 10% of uh, GDP in the U.S. But, and, and I realize that's a concern to a lot of people, but uh, what I can say is to those who are deeply concerned about this sudden and very rapid rise in government debt is arguably it could not have come at a better time financially um, because governments can borrow for less than 1% for 10 years. And so the long-term interest costs of this additional debt burden is, is, is manageable. And just to put it in, to give you one example, if we think of Canada's uh, economy-wide budget deficit being over $100 billion, well, Ottawa can borrow, as, as we speak, for about 0.7%. Uh, for uh, f- uh, for ten years, so that's an interest cost of less than a billion dollars uh, per year for uh, for that massive additional spending. So I do view it as as manageable, even though we are going to see uh, quite a, quite a big step up in uh, in government debt. I think another economic le- legacy of this crisis, at least uh, a medium term one, and and this goes back to my earlier comment that it's going to take time for the economy get to get back to 100 percent is that unemployment rates are likely to stay a little bit higher uh, for a while. I'm not talking about some of the big uh, frightening numbers we're going to be looking at in the next couple months, you know, the likes of which we've probably none of us have seen before. Uh, but as the shutdowns end, that, that spike in joblessness uh, should reverse fairly quickly. Uh, but I do think that after, after um, that initial up and down, we are going to end up with an unemployment rate that's one to two percentage points higher and pre-crisis levels, say, when we get over a year or so. Doug, just back on the government debt. So big price tag to all the stimulus, therefore large government balance sheets, therefore a long time to pay that off. Are, are you telling us that the rate um, is the savior and that it's, it's, it's so cheap that it's okay? Or is there a point at which we're just going to have to expect governments, plural, uh, to find their way to... Um, to to dig away at this debt with higher taxes, I, I think in the uh, the initial stages of the recovery, I would I would basically let let some of the one time programs run off. I would not be aggressive in trying to bring down the deficit. 
uh, unless we start to see some real pressure on uh, on longer-term borrowing costs. Now, the good news is the other thing that's been wheeled out almost around the world is quantitative easing. And, uh, you know, not to put too fine of a point on it, but effectively central banks are buying up that extra debt. And we've seen absolutely, you know, no sign whatsoever that there's, you know, any concern among investors that long-term interest rates are, are starting to go up. If anything, those long-term interest rates have actually come down in the last couple of weeks, even amid this uh, swelling government spending. Okay, let's um, let's swing all the way back to Beijing, um, Albert. I want to talk about um, advice to business leaders. Um, you're in the business of providing advice to business leaders in Asia, as well as business leaders in North America, because so many of our businesses are conduits and corridors between those two geographies. Based on your experience so far for this crisis, what has your advice been, and what are you telling them that we should be anticipating next? Uh, Well, as a banker managing through a pandemic, uh, I've learned a few things, and and perhaps I I would want to share this with with, uh, my audience here. Uh, I think I think first thing is uh, I learned is uh, ask for help when you need it. None of us are experienced in this, and we need to share our wisdom and help each other out. I would not have gotten through this with specific help from within the global BMO family. And through business, we also got tremendous help from the local Beijing city government to get us through this. Another point I think I I want to bring out is reach out to clients. A client in difficulty is like a best friend in need of help. Simple conversation can go a long way to build trust. Everyone's looking for comfort, looking for help, looking for direction. Uh, An interesting uh, uh, thing I learned through this is our people, our staff, they all respond very differently to this crisis. I think because each individual has a unique set of personal challenges. So I think what we need to do is to forge one direction as a team, but we do need to accommodate differences with compassion. Uh, we all think communication is very important, and, and it goes without saying, uh, but the level of comfort we derive from hearing things early, uh, a step ahead, sharing timely and accurate information, providing advice even before people are asking for it, I think that really reduces anxiety. I think that quite a few things to, to anticipate next, and... and um, there's one thing I think that will happen from a North America point of view. It's this unfortunate but dreadful wait for the apex to come. Uh, I think that it's important that uh, we support tough measures from government. Uh, sometimes it's quite difficult to do, but we have to do, and we need to be demanding on ourselves and those surrounding us to be disciplined. And I think we need to take it seriously, and that's what we need to expect and anticipate. And do expect to see constant struggle to balance between safety of staff and business. And there will be some tricky decisions to make because staff feel very differently depending on their background. And we're already seeing that a new normal is evolving, uh, that some social distancing habits may be difficult to reverse. I'm going to find out a little bit more in the next couple months from where I am. Uh, people seem to get comfortable with some of the measures they've been doing. I wonder if they ever will reverse it. Now, the Chinese government now, the focus is to ramp up internal consumption aggressively, expand the forensic approach to assist the economy, while aggressively stopping the resurgence 
of the virus. I think some of those, what the Chinese government is doing, we might anticipate that it may happen as well in North America. So I think bottom line with tough measures and extreme self-discipline, um, I'm confident the recovery will be on the way. Okay, I want to I stick with the theme of advice to business leaders, but I actually want to bring this question over to Dr. White. I know that you've been speaking regularly with the U.S. Surgeon General and other key public health officials. Are there things that business leaders in particular, listening to this discussion that we're doing today, that we're having today, should be doing or thinking about to better prepare their companies? Sure, and I think what we're starting to talk about now is the concept of social determinants of health. And access to the healthcare system is one component of it. But how do we recognize and ultimately protect the economy since that also impacts health? Meaning people can die of hunger. People can die that they're otherwise not going to the emergency room when sometimes they should be. In the H1N1 virus, we saw that people died from other health issues more so than that virus. So we need to make sure that we're addressing all elements of health. And what I've been talking about the Surgeon General and some other public health experts is I think we're going to start to see a focus on mitigation strategies that are based on risk. So this virus is going to be here um, for a while, but how do we mitigate risk um, based on evidence and based on data? And how do we start to think about for businesses and the economy and our communities a targeted, almost surgical approach, such as was used in Singapore and South Korea, where in most of those places, they did not close the schools and they had a very targeted approach. The other aspect that I think we're going to see, which is going to have an impact on businesses, you know, we've been talking a lot about testing, and we recently announced that Abbott has come out with a 5- to 15-minute test, and Cephid has a 45-minute test, and these are point-of-care testing, which is really going to transform the ability to test if we can address the issues of supplies by pets and gowns. But where we're going to transition soon, Daryl, is to antibody testing, and it's a blood test as opposed to having to swab a nose or a throat, and we're going to be able to see if people have recovered and we have good data to show that they will have immunity. It should respond like every other virus, and you have immunity. So those folks can likely return to work sooner. Those folks can be at the, you know, the uh, front line of the outbreak. And if we do more wide-scale antibody testing, we're going to have a true sense of the scope of the outbreak in the community. And we're going to see mitigation strategies that are based on the dynamics of the infection locally. That's where I think we're going to be in the future, because we need an off-ramp to all of this. And, and we need to also have a strategy that's next time. So I think businesses have to start to think about how do they prepare based on this idea that some folks in, in some areas may be able um, to return to a more sense of normal sooner than others? And then how do we prepare employees for that mindset while also ensuring that we protect the health uh, of everyone in the community? That's great. Th thank you. And, and I want to come to Doug. And Doug, I want to shift gears here once again. I want to go back to 
um, the relief packages that we're seeing in, in many economies around the world, in particular the United States and Canada, um, substantial relief for consumers, for businesses. We at BMO are on the front line of some of the distribution and the extension of that relief to our customers. But from your economics perspective, how do you see that relief starting to flow and what do you think the impact will be and how optimistic should we be about it as a bridge to a better place? And, and this, uh, this sort of packages I see are, are more a replacement for, uh, for lost income than anything else. It's, as you said, it's a bridge over this, uh, this mandated uh, closure. So effectively, I, I think most will just be using it over the short term to, to pay the bills. I don't view it as uh, stimulus in the traditional sense. It's really just keeping incomes and revenues as stable as they can be uh, to hopefully help reinforce the recovery when the, uh, the shutdowns are, are through. Um, as an aside, one area where you know we're starting to hear that's uh, that's weakening very abruptly is that used to be a strong area is that is the housing market. Uh, I still maintain that that's a, a sector that I think can, uh, when we're past the health crisis or the worst of it, it, it can recover reasonably quickly in the second half. I think it'll be supported uh, by the lower interest rates uh, that the Bank of Canada has delivered, and still fairly solid underlying demand. And I think that that is one area where there we can really look to. Uh, to hopefully recover relatively quickly in the, in the second half of the year, supported uh, by these uh, these relief measures, at least indirectly. Okay, that's 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 encouraging. And and Christy, I want to go back to a comment you made earlier about opportunities um, for retail institutional investors. Um, can you distinguish at all as between opportunities in the public markets versus in the private markets for private investors? How do you see that? Um, how do you see those distinctions rolling out? That's why I think the important thing to note there, you know, whether it's a distinction between public and private markets or institutional and retail investors, I think the answer is there are going to be opportunities, you know, sort of across the piece. You know, on the private side specifically, we do know that illiquidity premiums will widen as conditions become more stressed. And, and given the somewhat restricted buyer base uh, in private markets, when there are forced sellers, you're likely to see, you know, fairly significant discounts. But I don't think that that means that there will only be opportunities, uh, you know, on the private side. You know, as I referenced before, there's just a great example coming out of our investment trust uh, in EMEA, uh, obviously a liquid publicly uh, listed asset um, that both institutions and individuals can trade in. Um, and so there's just an opportunity that I think, uh, you know, presented itself that, that has a similar ret- return and illiquidity premium to what you might see uh, in private markets. So I think it will absolutely be both. And I think, you know, as it relates to this distinction between individual and retail investor, uh, between retail investors and institutional investors, I think it's really important to underscore that this crisis um, is going to create opportunities for both camps. And the recipe for success is is actually quite simple, no matter if you're a really large institution or, you know, a mom and pop investing for your own retirement. I I think it's pretty simple. It's about staying connected. It's about staying focused on your uh, long-term investment objectives and then being ready to step in when things get over time. And and I don't want to suggest that any of those things is really easy, but that's why we're here to help. We're producing a tremendous amount of content. We have reached across asset classes and global markets, so we can provide a truly holistic perspective. And we want to have a dialogue. 
So we encourage clients to engage with us, to reach out for us, you know, as reach out to us. As Albert mentioned, you know, it's together that we can all emerge from this successfully. Okay, speaking of Albert, what I'm going to do, I'm going to suggest our path home in this call will be as follows. I'm going to invite one more intervention, and it'll be from Albert. And then after that, I'm going to go to a couple of rapid-fire roundtable questions from the group, and, and then we'll wrap up. But before we do that, Albert, the question that I want to ask you is probably the question that's on everybody's mind since I set you up at the beginning of the conversation as having somebody who has a view from the other side of the bridge. Um, it's, it's, it's a terribly difficult uh, question, I know, but we're going to ask it anyway. What should we expect the evolution for everybody to look like when we get to the other side of the bridge here in North America? Uh, well, to me, I've been on this bridge for a while, um, and I hope that uh, we are now coming closer to reaching the land on the other side of the bridge. Uh, but uh, I wanted to see uh, some conversations uh, in social media here already on a few things that may evolve. I think one thing people talk quite a bit about now is um, health and safety will become a priority, a bigger priority for in the long term. And people will likely be demanding more from their employers and government to keep them healthy and safe. So there's already been talk about government need to come up with policies to address workplace safety, uh, hold employer uh, liable uh, in case of any sickness. Now, that's a pretty tricky subject as well. So I think that will have some profound impact on how business is going to be managed uh, going ahead. Um, already seeing optimization of businesses, meaning weaker companies um, will not recover, uh, unfortunately, but the industry will consolidate. And uh, seeing a structural shift in demand as well for some industry will happen. I think it's already beginning. Uh, China's known for a place uh, that is very digital oriented. But even then, uh, I think there's a big push to go to all the way to digitize the uh, parts of the economy. So I think large-scale expansion of online channels are being talked about here with the experience learned through uh, this uh, pandemic. Uh, it will hit some bricks and mortar business. Work from home is less popular in Asia and is not popular in China as well at all. It hasn't been something that people would believe in, but I think now it's mainstream. And I think uh, business model and work arrangement will change forever. Um, I think one point also worth mentioning is uh, some industry will be reshaped due to the change in consumer behavior. Uh, I think things are unfolding. We don't know how some of those changes will evolve and whether it's going to stay permanent. But obviously in the leisure business, in retail, and even in healthcare, uh, I think we're going to see some profound change. Um, and uh, typically in, in China, when change happens domestically, uh, they could quickly jump onto it and policy will follow after. So I probably will learn more and report more later on. Uh, but definitely life will change definitely somehow. And I think the important thing is, is uh, we all need to get through this bridge and land on the other side of the bridge safely. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you, Albert. Thank you for helping show us the way. Um, what we're going to do now, we have time. For, I think we have time for one, probably two, uh, roundtable questions. And the way we'll do this is I'll ask the same question uh, to each of the panelists. And you can each answer relatively quickly because we are on the clock, so a minute, two minutes 
uh, each. And I'll start with the first question. We'll go around the horn, and then I'll go to the second question. The first question, um, you can really take your, your choice uh, as you wish to, to part of the question you want to hit. The question is, what's your biggest takeaway from this crisis? Or do you have a particular comment on something that you heard somebody else comment on in this call? Your choice. I'm going to start with you, Dr. White. Sure. I think my biggest takeaway is how we've utilized innovation and used it rapidly. And a good example is telehealth. Telehealth has been trying to take a much greater foothold in the United States for some time. And now there's just been an explosion. And in some ways, there wasn't capacity up front. But I think that's going to be one of the biggest changes to health. Albert talked about how work at home is going to have a much bigger effect around the world. I think doing visits from your living room and your bedroom um, is going to be one of the biggest changes that we're going to see in health as a result of the coronavirus. And, and that's going to have significant impact uh, in a good way in terms of how healthcare ultimately is delivered in all of North America. Okay, Doug. Well, I'd say my biggest takeaway is this is a unique economic shock, the likes of which none of us have really seen before, but the the policy response has been impre impressive and rapid. And I think there were a lot of lessons learned from past crises. Uh, we are likewise going to see some shocking econo economic numbers in, in the days and weeks ahead. But I, w I would say to everyone that markets are, are, are well-braced uh, for that. And, and overall, this this was a big test for markets. Um, up to this point, it, it looks like they, they and policymakers have, at least at this point, passed that test. Christy. Yeah, I mean, not specifically market-related, but I think my biggest takeaway would just be on the importance of preparation. You know, I think about the things that we did in our business, you know, very early on in this crisis to really get prepared to migrate from a primarily work-at-work work to a work-at-home scenario. And I'm just thankful that I had a fantastic team under me and was well-supported so that we kind of gone through those processes and understood what we really needed to do. And I, and I think, you know, if we think about it more on, on a global scale, I mean, th I think this crisis has also demonstrated to us just how important preparation is, that we need to be thinking through, uh, you know, perspective threats to us as humans, to our economy, and, and developing in advance measures that we think can combat them effectively. Great. Albert? Well, through this experience, I learned that normal is actually good. Routine is great. Life is precious. Uh, this week, uh, I got stuck in traffic jam, and I did not complain. I actually felt good about it, believe it or not. <laughs> so we've seen, yeah, <laughs> and people have demonstrated heroic acts, especially those on the front line. So uh, whether they be healthcare workers and look deeper into the people who are supporting and keeping things normal at this very abnormal time. So I really come to a, a lot more appreciation of the people who's keeping our life normal and routine. And that's actually not easy. Uh, so biggest takeaway, I think, uh, echo uh, Christie's point, we need to anticipate, be careful, but not fearful. And I think we'll come out totally fine. Okay, that, that uh, brings me to my very last question, and we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to open it to all of you, and then we'll go in order. And just to make sure my panelists are on their toes, I'll go in reverse order this time. Um, and I think it's important as... as uh, horrific and as difficult as this experience is for uh, many, many people. 
um, unprecedented as, as it is, I'd like to actually try to end the conversation uh, on an optimistic note. So I'm going to ask uh, my panelists here, what gives you optimism for the days and the weeks ahead? Albert, you were on a roll just now, so I'm going to come to you first. Sure. Uh, well, Asia seems to have passed the apex of the pandemic, knock on wood. There have been uh, some very challenging days. Uh, and now I can sense the path to getting back closer to normal. So I know there is at least one winning path we can take to beat this virus that is tough measures and self-discipline. And I have no doubt there are other ways as well. So we can beat this virus even faster by working together and supporting each other at the global level. When we are doing that, I'm confident that we'll be on a good path. Our economies are in a recession stage, but we know how to start something that we voluntarily halted ourselves. So the machine is not broken, just paused. I'm optimistic because I know that we're all resilient and adaptable. There are silver linings out of all these. We'll come out stronger because we can defend future crises better and our economy will become more efficient and crisis-proof as a result. So I am feeling good about that, despite we're not this yet. That's great. Christy. Goodness, I feel like I should just say ditto. Um, <laughs> but I guess I would say if I were to really highlight anything, you know, it would really be just the capacity to sort of learn from the past. And, you know, we've hit on it several times throughout this call, but, but really a lot of the stability that we've seen coming back into financial markets is because we developed a toolkit in response to 2008, and now we know how to deploy it. And so I, I think I'm just quite confident because I think what we've shown is our capacity to learn and our capacity to implement things that are proven to work. That's also great. Doug? I would say I'm, I'm amazed at how well policymakers have worked together across the aisles in a time of true crisis. And I, I think maybe the best example is how quickly we got a $2 trillion package through Congress last week. When you think about all the machinations we had to go through in the 2008-2009 crisis, it was amazing how quickly that got done, how quickly things in Canada got done. And ultimately, I would echo something that Albert said. The economy was not broken before this uh, crisis came along. In fact, I would suggest the underlying economic and financial position was relatively healthy, and, and I remain encouraged that the recovery will be relatively robust in most sectors. Thank you, Doug. And Dr. White, you get the last word on optimism. Over to you. Oh, wow. Well, a, a couple of thoughts. What I'm optimistic about from a scientific perspective is there's no data that the virus has mutated. So that's very important as we think about our public health strategies to combat it. But the other aspect where I've been impressed and have optimism is when I look at across North America, our ability to innovate. If you think about where we are in diagnostic testing in terms of you know, a test for a novel virus that we have developed in months and multiple tests and multiple point-of-care testing, that is impressive. And we've decreased regulatory burden to make drugs available in the context of emergency use authorizations and in terms of trials. I'm very optimistic about that we've, we've responded to a crisis in ways that ultimately protect the health of the public. Well, I don't know um, if there's a better place to leave it than that as we talk about the health of the public because that's what all of this is about. I want to thank 
all of my fellow panelists today, whether you've joined from Florida or Toronto or Washington or Beijing, you are experts, you've been candid, you are knowledgeable, you are the best. Um, we at BMO have prided ourselves for a very long time on providing timely and accurate analysis, and today's discussion is just one in a very long series of discussions that we're having with the marketplace and our trusted clients so that we can help support you, we can help you, and we can advise you. So I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen in today, and I wish you all the best of health. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.